I want to show you something that I'm just a little bit proud of. Thank you very much. Better and better. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> well, the, the new hip seems to be working out okay, and uh, and I'm I'm pretty happy about that. I I have my physicians and my physical therapists to thank him for that. Uh, Greg was telling me before the service that his father uh, was a career uh, Marine and that his son is also a career Marine. And uh, thank the good Lord for the work of our nation's military. And um, so thank you for I know you've had a few anxious moments over the years. So thank you for doing that. Uh, I want to um, also say that um, today, after the service, this is this is the thing, Patrick, that you asked if you had forgotten anything, and that I had forgotten. Okay, this is it. I wrote, I wrote it down. So after the service today, if you are a person who has had a father, uh, who is a father, or who might one day become a father, um, or just Male in nature. Uh, we uh, we have a special treat for you. Linda and Suzanne uh, put together a uh, a little package for you. So what we're going to do is at the conclusion of the service today, uh, after the benediction is pronounced, I'm going to ask you to sit down uh, for just a few moments uh, while we distribute those. We have a, I see that David is there and. Uh, Callie's here. Okay, good. And uh, to help out the distribution to the men, uh, this special treat. Now, what I didn't tell Linda was that I went through them all and took all the brownies home last night. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm only halfway through. <laughs> I thank Linda and Suzanne for, for helping us out. We've begun a series of sermons subject to interruption, but we have begun a series of sermons on the vision and the value of Bay Presbyterian Church. And it is this uh, vision, mission, and set of values that gives us, we're saying, a unity of purpose and in some ways define us as a church. Um, if, if you you could go online and you could find this out, but you, all all the corporations they have a vision statement, a mission statement. They want you to know what they're about. It's the thing that helps their their organization stay focused and on track. It keeps them from uh, what we like to call mission drift, uh, from getting too far afield of what their distinctive competence is and what they're all about. And it helps us as a church. And so when we hire a, uh, go out and look for a new pastor, uh, we know what we want because we have a mission that's defined. It's stated. It's in black and white for us. And so we do. We have a vision and a mission statement. I just thought maybe 
Uh, we did it last week. I think it would be good for us to do it again this week. But why don't you take out that statement of faith that's on the back of inside cover of your bulletin, and let's take a look at that and um, just read down through there. I'll, I'll read. You don't have to read. Oh, you know what I thought would be nice? Before I get started here, maybe we would have all the ladies come forward and sing that <laughs> No, let's not do that. Okay, statement of faith. Vision. Bay Presbyterian Church is a community of believers given to loving and worshiping God, loving and serving our neighbors. And our mission is, in other words, how do we accomplish, how will we accomplish that vision? What do we want to look like uh, to the community, to all the watching world, to all our stakeholders, where we want to be a community of believers that are given to the to loving and worshiping God and loving and serving our neighbors. That's how we want people to perceive us. The, oh, yeah, those are the people who love and worship God and they love and serve their neighbors. Uh, our mission, then, is how are we going to do that? By teaching the good news of Jesus Christ, encouraging people in their faith and equipping them to go into the world to meet spiritual and physical needs. And then our values. What are, what are some of our uh, leading values well, our chief goal in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the same in substance with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory. The greatest moral value in this life is the worship of God our Creator. We're going to talk about worship today. Jesus lived, died, and bodily rose from the grave, returned to heaven, and will uh, come again. God is sovereign, the ruler over all of life. The Bible is God's word, a love letter to his people. The Bible is infallible and has everything needed for faith and life. Heaven is a free gift. It cannot be earned or deserved. Jesus bore his people's sins and the punishment that they deserve. Faith in Jesus' work on our behalf and faith alone gets us to heaven. Those are our... Um, guiding principles, our guiding values, and our, our vision of what we want to be as a church and then our mission. So we, we've begun this series of sermons to kind of unpack that a little bit. One of the things that, that I discovered and that probably you are discovering is that Presbyterians are annoyingly biblical. <laughs> when we want to do something, we want to find a biblical justification for it. And if there's not a biblical justification for it, we were a little bit circumspect of it. And when I get up here and preach, or when Greg gets up here and preach, when Rachel stands up and teaches, when Patrick gets up and preaches, you need to listen to what we say, and you need to check it out. You, you just don't don't take our word for it. You go look in the Bible and you say, is that in the Bible? I want to know if that's in the Bible. If that's in the Bible, I'm not so sure about that. So check us out. You will be the fact checkers uh, as we uh, preach uh, what we understand God to be saying in the Bible. So we have a, a vision statement uh, that we are working through. And Proverbs chapter 29 says, without a vision, the people perish. Now, you've heard that, that uh, verse before. Maybe you've even heard a sermon on before. And I have to tell you that 
uh, I've, I've heard pastors do a not so good job on that. Because strictly speaking, Proverbs is not referring to the, the same sort of vision that we're speaking of when we say that we have a vision and mission statement. Because the Hebrew word in Proverbs 29 is the word hazon. Hazon. Now, now you know Hebrew. Uh, and it has reference to a word from God. God would, in the Old Testament, when they didn't have Bibles in the Old Testament. So if God were to communicate something to people, he would do it by way of a vision or a dream. And what this is saying is, in Proverbs 29, is that if, if there was no vision from God, if there's no word from God, then the people perish. What it means is that our souls are so starved for God and his word that if we are bereft of God's word, we are aimless to the point of despair. So, it was the chazon, it was the vision from God, the word of God, if you will, that kept the people of God between the lines. It kept them uh, moving forward. Our souls, the deepest, most profound part of us, are desperate for God. What Pascal called a God-shaped vacuum that exists in that part of us, that piece of us that Augustine called restless without God, and what Jeremiah called desperately sick without God. This desperation that we have for God manifests itself in any number of ways. Self-medication is one. Do you know that this last year, I don't, someone correct me if I'm wrong on this, but in this nation, we lost 100,000 people to drug overdoses. Is that right? 100,000 people to drug overdoses. That's twice as many people as died in Vietnam. We lost in one year to drug overdoses. Um, so some people self-medicate. Drugs, alcohol, or a variety of, addiction, of addictions. And also through a myriad of angel, or of uh, idols that we try to uh, fill that hole. And we, we subconsciously use those idols to try to plug that one gaping soul hole where God is supposed to fit. And, and it's in our nature as human beings to worship. Everyone worships something. Everybody worships, worships someone. Yesterday, um, I, I read, I don't know when the, the Gallup poll actually came out, but I read about it yesterday. The Gallup poll came out, and, and that Gallup poll told us that belief in God is at its lowest it has ever been since Gallup first began asking the question in 1944. And that report said that 81% of the people surveyed and it's fairly uh, reliable to extrapolate that to the entire, population, the entire population of the United States, but about 81% of the people that um, were interviewed and really in the United States claim a belief in God of some sort. Now, 
that's, to me, I was kind of surprised it was that high, quite honestly. But they didn't mention what kind of God that it was. And, and some people who believe in God believe in a, in a God other than the God of the Bible. Um, I, I have, I had a friend, um, and he, he was a self-avowed atheist when we first started talking. And somewhere during our discussions, he said, I don't think I'm an atheist anymore. I think I'm an agnostic. Well, that's movement. That was okay. But I asked him, what is your God? And he said, the shared set of universal values. Well, that's, that's to me, that's not a God. That's certainly not the God of the Bible. And, and yet that was his, his God, that, his agnostic God. And, and, uh, and I was, you know, I was pleased that he was making a uh, movement and he was reading the Bible for the first time. And so I was really kind of excited about that. But, um, unfortunately he, he got an early call to, to go meet God and, um, we can only hope for his future on that. But, um, he he claimed a belief in God. So in one sense, if he had, was asked that question by uh, by Gallup, he would have said, "Yes, I believe in God." So that's I think that's what kind of juiced those numbers a little bit and made them, um, as far as I'm concerned, unreliable. Um, George Barna is a guy who does the same sort of thing in the Christian realm, and uh, he says that uh, probably 15 percent of America's population are, are believers in the sense that we would recognize a believer as a person who believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, who went to a church that preached and taught the Bible. Um, and so it, there's a 15% number there. Gallup's was 81%, but of course you could believe in anything you wanted to believe at that point. So there's a disparity in the numbers. but. Um, of course, the Bible goes and tells us that the devil also believes in God. And he trembles when he does, when he, when he thinks about God. The point being, of course, that it doesn't tell you too much about the belief systems of those surveyed, except that there is some kind of innate, well, um, some sort of God-induced sense of the holy that everybody has. And along with it, the desire to pay homage to whoever or whatever that God is. Romans one twenty five says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul recognized that there was a tendency, a proclivity on the part of human beings to worship something and in that case, he said, they sold out the God of the scriptures and worshipped creatures rather than the creator. Of course, those who worship creatures could also qualify for George Gallup's poll. Today, in our continuing consideration of our vision and mission statements, having last week identified ourselves as a community, now we're moving on, saying that not only are we a community, but we're a community given to loving and worshiping God. Now, when I was early in the week this past week, my plan was 
to be spending, uh, spend most of our time in Psalm 96, which is a Psalm of David. However, um, as, as I was preparing for this sermon, as I got deeper into my study, I, I began to realize that it would be an important thing to consider the context of Psalm 96. Everything is written in a context. And for us to understand the context would give us further insight into what Psalm 96 was about. So in the event that the clock runs out on my notes, or out on me before my notes run out on me, uh, I want to read Psalm 96 with you. And um, Hillary, oh, there you go. You're, You're all over it. Thank you, Hillary. Okay, Psalm 96, you can follow along as I read. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. You know what I was thinking? As I was thinking about that verse, I was thinking about what Rachel read a little bit earlier. So that even Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling before Almighty God. David said, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the Lord is established. It shall never be, excuse me, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the seas roar, and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. So, let's... Consider some context. Let's consider the backstory to Psalm 96. You're going to recall that both Noah and Moses both had an ark, right? They both had an ark. They were different sizes, and each of their arcs had different purposes, but they both had arcs. So an ark was a means of conveyance. You carried something in an ark. In in, in Noah's case, you carried people. In Moses' case, you carried tablets. You carried a jar of manna. You carried uh, carried Aaron's rod, but you you carried things in these means of conveyance. Actually, I was reading um, one commentator said that Moses actually had two arks. The first was the basket that his mother made out of reeds. And covered with pitch and put him in that ark to send him down the river. And then later on, he had another ark. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, 
that arts get people or things safely from one place to another. Um, it was always safer on the inside of the ark than on the outside. But for Moses, the ark meant the presence of Almighty God. The Holy Lord God Almighty sat, as it were, on the ark. Two cherubim were represented on the top of the ark, back to back. And at the place where the wings of the seraphim came together, remember in Isaiah where it talked about each of the seraphim had six wings. Okay, so when they made the seraphim and, and, and created those images on top of the ark, they sat back to back and where the wings came together, that was the mercy seat. God's presence with his people was represented by that ark and had a special place first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And it was the center of Jewish worship because it was the place where God met his people in the Holy of Holies. Keep in mind, remember what we said at the outset, that we are desperate for the presence of God. That's what we need to make us work. But the people of God played fast and loose with the ark. They treated it as somewhat of a good luck piece. Uh, in pre-Davidic times, when Israel was fighting the Philistines, the Israelites removed the ark from its place in the tabernacle, and they brought it out onto the field of battle. They were in pitched conflict with the Philistines. They were losing. They brought the ark out. They thought, okay... Time to pull out all the stops. We're going to bring out the big guns, the ark. And the Israelites, believing that God had joined them in battle, let out initially a whoop and fought hard so that the battle went their way. But the edge that they had was short-lived, and the Philistines won the day, and they captured the ark. On that same day, Samuel... His daughter-in-law bore a son, and she named him Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory has departed. The glory of Israel had left Israel. The glory now was in Philistia. The presence of God, the heart of the Israelites, the deepest, most meaningful part of their existence was gone. Now, there's, now that the ark is gone from Israel, you have two scenes. On the one scene, you have the Philistines. On the other scene, you have the, the Israelites. Now, the Philistines, um, I'm not, I'm not going to go into the whole story. You need to do that yourselves. It's very interesting. But they brought the ark into the temple of Dagon, who is the principal god of the Philistines. And there's a whole, uh, a whole story that unfolds there in that temple. But the Philistines got so annoyed, so frustrated, so um, cowed, if you will, that they took that ark and they put it on an ox cart. They didn't want any human beings near it. And they sent it back to Israel. And it got to the border of Israel, Kiriath-Jerim, and the, and the ox stopped. 
And then the Israelites had to pick it up from there and take it back home. Now, now we're back to the Israelites. What's going on in, uh, in, among the Israelites? Well, um, for the Israelites, the worship of the Almighty fell away. The glory of Israel had departed. The ark was away from the people of God for 20 years. And, and again, that the, the travelogue of the ark is an interesting story by itself, and it's instructive. But... Um, I want, to, I want us to move ahead towards its rightful return to Jerusalem because that is the burden of Psalm 96. And so at the beginning of the journey, once it got to Kiryat Jerim in Israel, at the beginning of this journey, the ark handlers placed the ark on another ox cart. Now, please note that when the ark's specs were given by God, when he said, this is how you're to construct that ark, and here are the details. Now, if you go into Exodus, you find that there are an amazing number of details, and you wonder, how could anyone get all these things right? But they had very specific things about the Ark of the Covenant and how it was to be made. And it was first made with two rings on either side of the ark, through which long poles were to be slid when it was conveyed. The ark, when moved, was to be carried on those two poles. But in defiance of those specifications, maybe because it was easier, eh, it's too much trouble to put those poles through, let's let the ark do it, or the, the ox do it. The ark was placed on that ox cart, and on the journey, the ox stumbled, and the ark began to tumble off the cart. Someone tell me what happened next. Uzzah. Uzzah reached up to steady that, that ark, and what happened? He touched that ark. He was struck dead. Now, one is tempted to say, when you read that, well, that seems a little severe. And maybe by our reckoning, and maybe by our general 81% values, that is a little severe, but the two men were acting in defiance of God's explicit directions. A holy God is not to be trifled with. You might go to a subway sometime and see uh, a sign that says, do not touch third rail. And you say, well, that would be a little harsh if, if anything bad happened if I touched that rail after all. But if you touch that third rail, you're going to have the same fate as Uzzah. A holy God is not to be trifled with. Years before, when Moses would go up to Mount Sinai to receive the stone tablets, a perimeter was set up around the mountain. Rachel read about it earlier. And if man or beast crossed that perimeter, death ensued. And it was a reminder to the people that a holy God cannot live with sin, cannot abide sin. They cannot coexist. I like what Dr. R.C. Sproul says concerning that incident. Words to this effect. He said, besides, what was Uzzah afraid of? A little dirt? What's wrong with dirt? Dirt does exactly what God requires of it. It lies there. 
unlike Uzzah, who was not doing what was required of him. Now, at this point, having seen that Uzzah was killed in the conveyance of that ark, David isn't quite so sure that he wants the ark in Jerusalem where he lived. And so David dropped off the ark at a guy's house whose name was Obed-Edom. And it stays there for three months. And after three months, word filters back to David that, uh, oh, by the way, Obed-Edom is prospering like he never prospered before with the ark at his house. So David reconsiders and he says, okay, we'll take that ark. And this time, instead of hiring two men in an ox cart to move that ark, rather he hires two men who had the requisite poles to move that ark. And they bring the ark in and the worship is vibrant. And David is so effervescent in his expression of his worship that his wife, Michael, we're told, despises him. And I'm going to read these these accounts of what took place right here. And uh, Hillary does not have those. They're on this sheet. So you're going to have to listen here. So, David, this is in First Chronicles 13, 5 through 14. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamat to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim, and that belongs to Judah, and to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. The response of a hungry people for the presence of God. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kaidan, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the ox stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to that day, which means the Lord has broken out. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, how can I bring this ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained at the house of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. And then in First Chronicles 15, the end of this story. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring the ark of the covenant uh, of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with robe of fine linen, as also were the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers of Haniah. And the leader of the music of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod, 
So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating. And she despised him in her heart. I don't know if you've if you if you've uh, ever seen um, the 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 videos of when a Bible is completed by uh, the Wycliffe translators, for instance, and that Bible is brought into the presence of a, a group that maybe never even had a written language and who was far into the gospel until this Wycliffe group came in. Their response to the Bible is a little different than ours. To, to this, to this, I took all my books out of my, out of my office there, except a few Bibles, about, 20, about 25 Bibles. I have about 25 Bibles in my office. And, it's, and it, we take that so casually. I take that so casually. But when God gives a chazon, when God gives a word to people who have otherwise been bereft of the word of God, there is joy. There is celebration. And for, and for David and the people of Israel to receive back the presence of God when he had been gone was overwhelming to them. And their response was, was worship. And so David said to his friend, his worship leader, and his, uh, his, the leader of his choir, the guy's name was Gordon. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> it was really Asaph. But um, he, went to, he went to Asaph and he said, Asaph, I want you to make up a song that we're going to sing in worship to receive this ark the presence of God back into the midst of his people so that we can be, again be the unique, distinct people of God in all the earth. And so Asaph sat down and he wrote Psalm 96. And that is what they sang as that ark came into Jerusalem to be placed uh, in its special place in the tabernacle. It is a psalm of joyful worship. It's a celebration of God coming to his people who receive him with joy. And it's the appropriate action of God's people as they receive him, even as we receive him Sunday by Sunday. And so Psalm 96 gives us reasons why we worship. First of all, it says we worship God because of his incomprehensible Otherness. Psalm 96, verses 7 and 8. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory, chavod, heaviness. You remember, um, I don't know, it's been about uh, 12 years ago or so, when uh, Al Gore was running for the presidency against George W. Bush. And they were in a, in a uh, debate and, and um, Vice President Gore told the audience that George Bush had no gravitas. 
What did he mean? He had no heaviness, no weightiness. He was a lightweight, is what he was saying. And and the word uh, in the Hebrew for glory is heaviness. When we talk about God, we're talking about a very heavy subject, a very weighty subject. It means something to talk about God Almighty. And so it says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory, heaviness, weightiness, and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, the heaviness, the weightiness of his name. Tremble before him all the earth. And then we find out, according to Asaph, we worship because of his wonderful nearness. He invites us in verse 8, come into his courts. This God, this God who is holy other than us, this God who is so holy that to touch his ark inappropriately in defiance of him renders one lifeless. But that same God invites us into his presence. On what basis can we come into the very presence of this almighty God? Well, we find out that it's because God himself would pay for our sin. And because God pays for our sin, our our sin is forgiven. We are invited into the presence of God. And then we find out that we worship God because of his unmerited forgiveness Sing in Psalm 96 two. sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. And finally, we worship because he is a covenantal God who is alive and promises to be with his people. And then he invites people from outside that small circle of Israel. He says, tell his glory among the nations. When he says among the nations, he means to all tribes and tongues, take this good message everywhere. His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. And then he gives us some activities in worship, and I'm just going to kind of blow through here. Um, uh, the activities of worship that are in your, uh, on your outlines, ASAP does a nice job in describing some of these activities. First of all, there's singing to the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Rehearse his great works, the greatest of which is Christ on the cross. That is God's greatest work. Praise God. Psalm 96.4. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Ascribe glory to God. Psalm 96.7. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Psalm 96.8. Bring an offering. That's a favor of the pastors. Bring an offering, come into his courts, and then rejoice and be glad. So, as we think about vision, we are a community of people given to the worship of the living God. What do we take away from this psalm, Psalm 96? First of all, worship is the business of the people of God. Now, it is true that worship is something that everybody engages in, even even beyond the 81 percenters, because even the people who would would not acknowledge a God whatsoever would still have things that they worship, whether it's money or family or 
or reputation or uh, health or, or um, other people, whatever it is, they worship something. Everybody worships something. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, it was B.B. Warfield who said, worship is the greatest moral value of the church. What we do here on Sunday morning is of utmost importance. John Piper said everyone in the world worships something from the most religious to the most secular. All people value something high enough to build their lives around it. It may be God or it may be money, but what makes it worship is the driving power of some cherished treasure that shapes our emotions, our will, our thoughts, and our behavior. And even that vaunted theologian, Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, consciously or subconsciously, actively or passively, joyfully or grudgingly, everybody worships someone or something. But for the people of God, our worship is focused on the one who created the heavens and the earth. Whatever, this is a second takeaway here, whatever else the church is or the church does, its primary purpose is the worship of the Almighty. What you're doing here today is the principal function of the church. Mission conferences are good, but they're insufficient to constitute a church. Helping the poor and disadvantaged is an important allocation of church resources, but it is of secondary importance. Programs for the community and for people even in the church are helpful and may give and provide outreach and growth for the church, but it misses the purpose and intent of the church. There are a lot of churches who will say anything on Sunday morning so as not to offend anybody. But my question is, what do you tell them when they come to worship the Almighty? If we become afraid of offending people with the gospel, I will tell you this. Most people know politically, socially where I stand on issues. But I determined a long time ago that we are not going to offend people because of politics in this congregation. If people are going to be offended, it's going to be because of Jesus. And that is the position of the pulpit of this church. Uh, You know where I stand. And if you want to talk to me about it some other day, some other time, we can chat. But from this pulpit, you'll hear only Christ. Whatever else the church is or the church does, its primary purpose is the worship of the Almighty. Uh, And finally, I want to say that we all are guilty of idolatrous worship. Um, You can worship the Almighty and still worship idols. I do it all the time. The question isn't whether or not you do so, but what do you do about it when you discover that you do? Things like... Your reputation, our 401k, health and family. I've been chatting with people. I tell them that every one of us has sin patterns that are so deeply embedded in who we are as people. 
that you don't even know it. Not now. At some point, that will be revealed to you, either through a friend or a spouse or, or a relative or a pastor from this pulpit may unearth for you a sin pattern. The question is, what are you going to do with that sin pattern? Things like, um, well, things such as family. Even family can be idolatrous. Good things that we elevate to ultimate things. And finally, we want to say that uh, the worship of God is magnificent and it's majestic. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Would you pray with me? God, we... We do, in fact, worship you. That is our high value. That is our reason to be here today. That is our reason to be here as a church all the time, to facilitate the worship of the living God. God, we welcome you to our place today, thanking you that we can worship you in spirit and in truth and pray that Sunday after Sunday, Uh, our hearts would be given to the worship of the living God, which indeed is our highest moral value. We bless you today, God. Pray that you have received a blessing from us. And uh, thank you for, for these good folks who are here to ascribe to you honor and chavod, glory and heaviness. We make our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to conclude our service uh, today as we stand together. And Barb leads us in faith of our fathers. A good Father's Day concluding here.
Barbara Wishmeyer again for being with us. Thank you, Barbara. We'll see you again in July. And uh, we'll have uh, we'll be seated after the benediction. And uh, David and Callie will help us um, with our treats. So w- would you please receive God's benediction? For it's now unto Jesus, who is able to keep you from falling. It's now unto Jesus, who is able to present you before his glorious presence, spotless and with great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, honor, majesty, and dominion, both now and forevermore. Amen. Please be seated.